You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon. It is a uh, real pleasure to have my um, old friend, Alan Stewart, join me today on the Walker webcast. Uh, Before I dive into the intro to Alan and uh, our conversation on the movie industry, uh, a couple quick notes. Uh, The first thing is... um, as everyone saw with earnings last week from CBRE, JLL, and Walker and Dunlop, uh, the commercial real estate industry continues to move at a ferocious pace. Commercial real estate assets in the United States are attracting an unprecedented amount of both domestic as well as foreign capital. And as rates stay low and the world is yield starved, commercial real estate is seeming to be an incredibly good place for people to invest their capital. I would say that we had spectacular earnings at Walker Nullop last week, and I am uh, gratefully thankful to all the work of our team at WD for all they did in Q3 to have such a successful quarter. Um, the other thing I would say is that one of my um, peer CEOs uh, came out last week during their earnings call and called for a pretty rapid um, uh, rise in rates. And I wrote him a note after his earnings call and said, you're now predicting where interest rates are going to go. You must have had a really, really good quarter. Um, I think I'm smart enough not to try and predict where interest rates go. But I will say that um, after the Fed meeting last week and the Fed chairman putting together a plan for the tapering, the fact that rates have actually rallied over the last week, I think clearly shows that the market really doesn't know what's going to happen as it relates to rates. And the market is trying to digest all of this information on inflation. And until we get some clarity on how real inflationary pressures are and how that is going to impact the movements of the Fed, it's really a wait and see mode. And for now, rates are still exceptionally low and people are finding the opportunity to go and buy assets at low cap rates and put very cheap financing on them. Final thing I'll say before I turn to Alan, which is that I saw my old friend, Dr. Jim Lara last night and Jim we and I, Jim has been on the Walker webcast before, and Jim and I were uh, talking. He says, "Oh, I hear you have this amazing film producer on tomorrow." And I said, "I do." Alan is an incredible film producer, and he said, "How do you get these guests to come on the Walker webcast?" And I said, "Well, fortunately, Jim, um, I know people like you, and I know people like Alan, and they're kind enough to give me an hour of their time to shed some light on both what you do from a coaching and performance standpoint, and what Alan does from a." movie production standpoint. And so, um, Alan, welcome to the Walker webcast. You started your career in the movie industry with the large studios, moved up to be an executive at Warner Brothers, and then on to Fox, 20th Century Fox, and then founded your own firm, Flashlight Films, and have produced a number of very noteworthy films, such as Sully with Tom Hanks, Trial by Fire with Laura Dern, and Land with, most recently, with Robin Wright. Let's back up a little bit, Alan, to the very beginning. I think the first movie you ever worked on was Chariots of Fire. Tell our listeners how you got into the movie industry and what it was like working on that first film, Chariots of Fire. Well, I was 12 when Chariots of Fire was made, so don't add up the years. I finished university with a degree in international economics, 
And all I wanted to do was work in Europe because I had gone to school for a couple of years in France. And so I was meeting with multinational corporations and investment banks, and it just didn't feel like the right fit. And I walked onto the Fox lot, even though I grew up in Los Angeles, I didn't know anyone in the movie business. And the second I walked on the lot, it was like I was hit by lightning. I'm like, oh my God, they make movies. So it took me six months to get a job because not only did I want to work in the movie business, but I wanted to live in Europe, which was a tough combination in the early 80s. And I ended up working for Fox in London, starting in distribution. And then I realized, you know what? I want to make movies. I don't want to distribute other people's movies. So I moved over to production and kind of cut my teeth in a very small office in London where we made Empire Strikes Back and Alien and ultimately Chariots of Fire. And it was a blessing because I was in a very little pond and got a lot of experience quickly. And as you started to learn the movie industry, what was it that really attracted you in the sense of, was it the stories that were being told? Was it the economic side of you can make something and it can turn into a gold mine? Was it the artistic process of pulling things together? What was it that really, as you got into the industry, you sort of said, not only does that interest me, but that's what I'm good at. You know, I transitioned a lot and I'm glad that I was open-minded to just kind of take each turn with curiosity. I think initially I just was fascinated by the business and then became more and more fascinated with making movies, how you make them. And it's a tough business, but it can also be a lot of fun. The creative process combined with the business process can be fun, fun. But ultimately, I would say after a good decade, I realized my passion was not only telling stories, but that my craft became more and more honed on being able to develop screenplays. So hearing a story and then figuring out how to put it down on 125 pages or television, you know, multiple series episodes. But that's what I love. A lot of people just love the business of the business. But I genuinely love telling stories and the thrill of then seeing it on the big screen. As you look back on your career, was there a moment where, if you will, you had the opportunity to stay on the corporate ladder to think about one day running a big studio? Or did you always think that at some point you'd jump out on your own and start your own thing? You know, I was offered that a number of times. And finally, I kind of had the decision to make about, did I want to stay on the corporate side or go out on my own and produce movies? And my instinct was just to go out and basically live a purely entrepreneurial life, which was shock. It was culture shock because I left Warner Brothers at kind of the height of my career where not only would people return my calls, but I probably had 75 to 100 calls to return a day to All of a sudden, the phone doesn't ring and people don't kind of call you back. So it was a real climb back to where I was before. But I'm so grateful because here I am these years later. I absolutely love what I do. So what a blessing to be working every day and doing a job that I truly love much more than being an executive. One of the films that you worked on while you were still an executive at Warner Brothers was Driving Miss Daisy with Morgan Freeman. Talk about how that movie came to be, because I've, I've heard you a number of times talk about finding scripts and really thinking how stories will resonate with the viewing public. And uh, Driving Miss Daisy, if you looked at that script in that day and age, which was, I believe, 1989, wouldn't have exactly jumped off the page as sort of, let's make this movie and this thing's going to 
um, be one of the, you know, one of a block, a blockbuster movie. So tell us about the story behind Driving Miss Daisy. So two of the films I made during that period were Driving Miss Daisy and Dangerous Liaisons, both of which were plays and both of which I saw in New York. And I was sitting um, on Broadway watching Driving Miss Daisy. And I thought, oh, my God, what an incredible movie. And I found out um, that the rights had been sold, but they had been sold to my very dear friends, Lily and Dick Zanuck. So I called them up and said, "Okay, I've got to make this movie with you. And at that time, MGM owned the rights. MGM decided not to make it. And at that point, nobody would make it. So I said to them, I'm now still an executive at Warner Brothers. I said, I'm going to get this movie made. So I tried and tried and tried and tried. And even though at that time it was a minuscule budget, it was seven and a half million dollars. I could not get my bosses, the chairman of the board and the president of the company to greenlight the movie. And even one of my colleagues said, you know, you should shut up about this. This is not good for your career. And one night I was leaving the lot. It was late. And this woman was in her office right by the, by the parking lot. And she was an accountant. She yelled out. She goes, Alan, I read your script, Driving Miss Daisy. I cried so hard. I got up and I gave it to my neighbor next door that night. So I was like, God dang it. I'm just going to make this movie. I don't care what it takes. And I put together the financing. Warner Brothers put up a teeny bit for $5 million. And I found $2.5 million out of England, actually from my friend who would finance Chariots of Fire. And during the whole time that the dailies were being seen every day, every day, everybody's like, why do you want to make this movie? And at our first preview, which Willie and I talked about this, the scary thing about making movies is you can't preview a script. So you really have to go by your gut. At our first preview, it struck a chord with the audience and that was sheer magic. But my neck was like out 10 feet before that first night of the preview. And how do you get someone like Jessica Tandy or Morgan Freeman to buy into doing a movie that is so, if you will, underfunded? I mean, you went out and basically against, not against the, you obviously got the $5 million from Warner Brothers, but this wasn't, hey, this is a, this thing is going to light the world on fire. How do you get great actors like that to buy into something like this? Well, interestingly, Jessica had done it on stage, but she was kind of an unknown. And the studio really, my bosses really wanted Audrey Hepburn. And Lily and Dick are like, nope, we're sticking with Jessica. Because she didn't really have a film career at that point. And next thing you know, she won the Academy Award, which was magical. And Morgan was an unknown entity at that point. He, I wouldn't say unknown, but I mean, he was not Morgan Freeman, as we know today. So the movie was a big break for him. And then at that point, when he was making the movie, he was living on his boat somewhere along the coast of Florida. I mean, he's an incredible man, but thereafter his career went. Yeah, I was actually, when I was doing research for this, I, I went and looked at what year Shawshank was made and Shawshank came out in 94. And so Shawshank yeah. was after Driving Miss Daisy. And that's the kind of miracle of the movie is that it really didn't have these big movie stars, but the studio did a brilliant release, which is that we started off in four cities and we went to 10 cities and we went to so this movie was completely governed by word of mouth. You couldn't buy your way into success. It literally had to be one person telling the other to go watch it. So what is it about something in that script and in many of the other movies that you have made, Alan, 
where I, I've heard you talk about the archetypal character, the, the person who represents a pattern of human behavior. What are those patterns in human behavior in the archetypal characters that you most look for? Because there's such a broad spectrum of archetypal characters. What's the one that you go after that has consistently resonated with your viewing public? You know, I think the one that speaks to me the most is the hero mythology, where the hero's tested every day because obviously we're all tested every day. And we identify with somebody that overcomes hurdles to perform in situations that can be um, extreme or about inherent survival, like Robin Wright Land, trying to figure out how to survive a horrible tragedy. Um, For me, what I've learned over the years, and being an executive was a huge gift because I got to get paid to make a lot of mistakes. So you start to learn what works and doesn't work, and particularly what you experience that's authentic versus others. And I've learned that I have kind of like a baseline common denominator with the everyman. And through the process of previewing, if I really feel something in my gut, and I stay true to it, and I make sure that the entire screenplay stays true to it, it reaches people. So I think it's about me realizing that, you know, I am a part of the pattern of human behavior, as we all are. So if I stay true to that as the essence of the story of the script, it reaches people. What's the one or two scripts or ideas that came to you that you ended up passing on that turned out to be huge hits? You know, the movie that it was so disappointing um, to not do. This is when I was an executive. Kevin Costner brought us Dances with Wolves. And I loved the script, but he insisted on having a lot of the movie subtitles. They were all speaking um, a Native American language. And so we passed. And of course, when I saw the movie, it's such a great movie that, you know, I couldn't really kick myself. But, you know, part of me feels like, well, maybe if I'd lit myself on fire, I would have gotten us to make it. That was a big that was a big pass. What do you I mean, when someone like Kevin Costner walks into your office with the script saying, I'd like to go make this. and we're going back some in your career as being an executive and you just talked about leaving Warner brothers at sort of the height of your career, but it must be very difficult with that kind of star quality all around you to really look through kind of all the glitter, if you will, of here's Kevin Costner in my office with a script and a movie he wants to make and look beyond that to sort of look at it from a business perspective. And you have to have at times sort of said, don't get caught up in sort of just who this person is or what the opportunities might be and boil it back to what's my gut say on this. And do I really think this is going to be a great movie from a dollars and cents standpoint? How do you toggle between that? Because for people like me and you know, 99% of the world, we don't come in contact with people we know every single day to the extent of star quality where you can get big eyes and sort of say, wow, if this person says they want to do it, I've got to do it. How do you, how do you manage through that? Well, you learn not to because being seduced by a surface energy, we all know that's not really the substance of the business that we do. So in Costner case, it was the opposite, which was to see past doubt because not only was it going to be subtitled, but he wanted to direct it and he'd never directed anything. And what I learned over the years is really listen to what the talent says, whether it's an actor or a director, particularly directors, where a director may have had a monster hit the movie before, but if you don't hear a vision for the project that he wants to do, 
that kind of jives with the script, you can't let yourself be seduced. And even though you're surrounded by people that say, great, 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 you know, make it with that person. Unless they really see the movie that you see, you just need to walk away. I always say that one of the things I learned about my work is it's very good to easy to be seduced into sounding good at a cocktail party. Yeah, I'm working with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. But that for me is, is a recipe for delusion. How was it before you went out on your own? And I want to get to it when you go out on your own. But as a female in the movie business, all of us, A, know about the really bad scandals with people like Harvey Weinstein. And we all also, many of us have watched Entourage, which seems little less than a, than, than a boys club as it relates to big entourages running around Hollywood to some degree misbehaving, but more importantly, sort of a, a men's club. How was it as a female executive at one of the major studios? You know, the worst moment of my career was when I was trying to get my first job and I wanted to go to Europe and the head of distribution at Fox said, well, what if she goes to Europe and gets pregnant? And thank goodness I had a benefactor really that said, are you crazy? Um, so that was the attitude when I first started working. When I became an executive, I was kind of in the second group of women working their way up. And I always think, I think my blessing is I have three sisters. I went to a boarding school, I mean, went to a girls' school. And so it didn't really occur to me. I didn't look for it. And I just put my head down. And I do believe we all, as women, had to work twice as hard as the guys around us because it was definitely a guy's club. But I just didn't look for any form of prejudice. It just, I did my job. And if I had to work harder, fine. And many times, you know, I've made a lot of movies where like I'm the one of the few women on the set. And again, I just feel like I know my job and I just don't, I don't look at it. I'm aware of it. I now look at it with curiosity, like, huh, how funny that person is diminishing me because I'm a woman, but I don't, I don't give them a second's worth of um, energetic response. It's not worth it. And was there any mentor that you had, male or female, that was helpful to you during either the formative years of your career or as you became an executive that was very helpful to you as it relates to kind of the moves you made and, and where you went and what you were working on? Yeah, I would say that the first mentor I had was Alan Ladd Jr. when I was an executive. and He ran Fox when I arrived. And what his perspective was more than anybody else running studios at that point is it's all about the movie and writers and directors, and he absolutely worshipped talent. So he wasn't into the business of the business. And I would say that thereafter in my executive life, I constellated with some of the most honest, integrity-filled, passionate heads of studios that were my bosses. And I think it's because that's what I gravitated to. I gravitated back to that much more than where can I make the next big deal for myself? I really wanted to work with great people. Honesty is a big thing for me. And I've been lucky that both in my executive life and in my producing life, I have worked with people that have a lot of integrity. And as you think about the people you work with today, someone like Clint Eastwood, who you know very well and have done a lot of work with. As you think about someone like Clint, who's been a director, an actor, a producer, um, and is such an iconic figure versus the Hollywood studio bosses, is Hollywood today headed more towards the artistic side represented by someone like a Clint Eastwood or the business management side, if you will, represented by someone like Bob Iger? 
You know, it's been in transition for a long time. As movies became more and more expensive, more numbers crunchers became involved in the decision making. So, which I completely understand. But equally, as movie studios started to be bought by all of these major corporations, then you had non-movie people running basically the studios. And that's created a bit of a schism because it is an absolute alliance between the creative process and business. And they have to be in balance. And if you think it's all just business and metrics, then you're missing the kind of magic of the creative process. And Iger's an interesting person to bring up because a lot of these companies are now making decisions based on algorithms, Netflix algorithms, which I think is, you know, market research is a tool, but it can't be the decision maker. And Bob Iger in his departing speech to his team when he was handing the reins over, he said, don't fall into the trap of using only algorithms. Trust your gut. Your gut is going to lead you to innovation and success, not just looking at numbers on a piece of paper. And so by that, I mean, is there one of the things that you've talked about and said previously is that there's no, this is a single product launch with no ability to test market it before you've built it. In the business world, we'd never do that. That's crazy. I mean, we, we'd never think about doing that. I'd never sit there and say, let's bet the entire farm on one product that we don't know whether our customers are going to like. I mean, every time at Walker Nellup, we launch something new, we've worked on it for a long time, we've shown it to our customers, we know it's going to work, and then we tell the world that we're actually working on it. And so the, the dynamics of that are so challenging as it relates to this is, this is going to work, this is not going to work, and, and how you build up that filter. And I'm just curious, as you've matured in the industry and seen both movies that have done exceptionally well and movies that have crashed and burned, how have you changed your own algorithm to the degree of that's got promise and that doesn't? Because I'm, I mean, all of us over time, I can today, after the number of years I've been in our business, I got a pretty good sense when problems are going to arise. And I've also got a pretty good filter on how to deal with problems because I've dealt with so many. That's what I get paid for. And I'm thinking that as you've gone through your career, you get better and better at that screening process, that personal algorithm. How is that changed? Well, I think, first of all, I I know that you do the same thing. You wear many hats. You have to look at a movie through all these different prisms. Good story, good cast. How do you market it? Why would somebody want to see this? Why would somebody want to click the clicker to watch it? And I think you just have to not compromise. And if you're not hitting, my movie producing partner for many years is an icon called Stanley Jaffe. And he always said, listen, If you aim for excellent, hopefully you'll get good. And it's just not compromising. If you're not getting the right cast, don't make it. It's also making the movie for the right amount, meaning land. Robin's a big, um, obviously very successful actress and television actress. But I knew that the market for that movie was adults. So we made it for a very reasonable price because Let's get into profit. And then if it goes way above, great. But I'm a big believer in the responsibility of the amount of the investment versus what the market potential is. So when you, when you see a script like Land and you start to, you take the script and you're developing a screenplay and then you're building a budget for the film, do you 
model that you need to get someone like Robin Wright in that role? In other words, I'm assuming that the cost of production has a huge impact of whether you're getting Robin Wright to do it or whether you're getting someone else to do it. And so as you, I mean, you said you get the right cast, but kind of going back to driving Miss Daisy, when you were sitting there with the screenplay and you, you, you were trying to put it together at that time, Morgan Freeman was not the star that he is. And Jessica Tandy wasn't sort of, if you will, the first pick, how do you deal with that? If you will, talent line in your P and L as you're building a budget for the movie, as you go out to try and raise capital on it, does it always have to have, we're going for the A star Robin Wright, or do you build it with a, well, we're going to put a line item in here that says we're going to get XYZ talent and then hopefully we can overshoot the mark. You know, like in the case of Daisy, the budget of the movie was commensurate with how notable those stars were. Even at that time, seven and a half million dollars was like that much. So I feel like I finally got it made because we couldn't lose a dime. There was no way we could lose money. And chances are we would make some money. Nothing like what we made, but it was not a risky investment. Land, the same thing. Uh, Robin, I had watched direct herself in House of Cards. She did it 10 times. She was uncommonly good as a director and directing herself. Initially, she didn't want to be in it. And I finally was like, okay, listen, we have to shoot through all these different seasons. We can't get an actor to be available the summer in the winter. You should just do this. And so she finally said yes. But Normally, if your budget grows because of the status of the star, the marketplace grows. So if the status of your star is, or or status is wrong, marketability, want to see, um, is lesser, then you make the budget a bit lesser. And if it's Tom Hanks who gets more, then it grows. But that's where you can really easily run the numbers in terms of what's the lowest threshold that this movie needs to hit to merit this money. But I'll say again, you know, you also have to make a great movie, meaning we can run the numbers all we want. You can get Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, whatever, but it's got to be a great movie. And when you were building the budget for land and you were talking to Robin about both directing it and acting in it, you also made the decision that you were going to build the set at 8,000 feet in Alberta, Canada, at the top of Moose Mountain. Why, why, why did you do that? You know, it was a huge fight that I had with my team because not Robin. It's like Robin is incredibly intuitive and she's made so many movies that we were just fluid, easy, great, creative conversation. Um, a lot of the other team wanted to do, build the set on a stage and do everything visual effects. And the views out this cabin to this magnificent wilderness. And I was like, you guys, a character in this movie is the environment, is nature. And I don't care how you do it. You can't fake it through visual effects. And so I finally won the battle. Um, and thank God, because our reviews upside down and sideways um, is about the beauty of nature. But when we were shooting, we had two major four-foot dumps of snow overnight. So we had to shut down. We had two days of 75-mile-an-hour winds. And so, of course, when those things happened, you know, the first AD is looking at me like, told you so. Told you so. Told you so. But it it was the right thing to do. And in that, when you get a four-foot dump of snow, my understanding was that you were going to film the fall scenes and then come back and film the winter scenes. But you ended up getting four feet of snow, and you said, let's go film the winter scenes now. Yeah. One of the things that fascinates me is that how do actors go from 
I would think that as an actor gets into a role and there's a continuum in a movie that they're building towards the sort of the crescendo at the end. And now all of a sudden you've stopped and said, we're going to film the end first and then we'll do the beginning later. How I'm assuming they're just great professionals and they can kind of act to the moment and act to it all. But is there something of filming in sequence, if you will, that ends up getting a better finished product than kind of jumping to the end, filming that and then going back and filming the beginning? You know, it depends on the actor. I think filming in sequence can be helpful in terms of the development of a character. People like Robin or Laura Dern, they're just nimble professionals. And sure, Robin had to readjust and deal with the vagaries of the set with, you know, it was, we had many, many crazy days. In fact, Robin and I ended up staying in our trailers at the top of the mountain a number of nights because it was taking an hour and a half, 40, hour 45 to get home. And I'm like, this is stupid. You're you're spending three hours on the road when you should be resting. She's a nimble pro. She could do it. And I don't know how, I mean, I would watch her just saying, I don't know how you're moving back and forth. And also the adversities. I mean, in the movie, you see her breath. I mean, that was real. Yeah. It was freezing. I mean, she was having to play summer and winter and it was crazy. But I learned, you know, Clint taught me something so great, which is just keep shooting. Don't look for perfection. Just keep shooting, shooting, shooting. So like when we started shooting Sully, our first week was in New York City and we were shooting on the Hudson for ferries arriving and the people getting off the ferry. And as we're starting to shoot, there was a hurricane warning. And I'm like, whoa, we better make plan B. He goes, it'll be fine. We're just going to keep shooting. So the day we're shooting, everybody getting off the boats, having been rescued, it wasn't a hurricane, but it was a complete tropical storm. I mean, it was insanity. And most people wouldn't shoot through that. Most people would say, okay, let's go home, come back. Clint's like, nope, let's keep going. And of course, he's Mr. Brilliant. You know, everything has to be authentic. It looks so great because the people getting off the boats were freezing and miserable, just like they wasn't, we weren't faking it. So it came out fantastic. And of course, everybody was safe. I mean, safety's everything. But it's more about how miserable can you let yourself be to get it on film. So when you talk about being on a set and safety being everything, I got to ask you about the very tragic uh, accident that happened on the set of Alec Baldwin's uh, movie Rust. To most of us who've never been on a Hollywood set before, the thought would be that you use fake guns and that animation will fill in what the bullet looks like or how it goes into a target, et cetera, et cetera, and that you use CGI for most of that. And so that when we heard that there was actually an actual bullet discharge and that there are actual live rounds on a movie set, at least I was shocked. And it's obviously a tragic accident that happened. How important is, obviously safety, as you just said, is super important, but in these sets and when you're filming, how much is live versus Memorex to go back to the old ad that you and I used to see when we were growing up? I mean, the accident is unconscionable, tragic. You never have a live round on the set, ever. And we have such strong protocols when weapons are needed for a scene Armorer never loses sight of the gun. The gun is checked and checked and checked. A first AD would never handle a gun who's the guy who took it off some cart where the gun was left out and handed it to the director. Like there were so many protocols that were violated that it makes me angry because that is the extreme, extreme, extreme aberrant behavior. And, you know, 
If I see one of my crew members not being safe on the set, which a couple of these people had already been not safe on that set, they go home, they don't come back. You, I never have anybody stay working. I don't care if we have to shut down, but safety, we're all, I always say we're only making a movie. So safety is number one, but they violated very, very strict protocols. And, you know, it, it, I guess it angers me not only for the loss of life, but it, it places a dark shadow on our business. And that's just not how we behave. Meaning everybody checks us the gun. This person checks it. And that, it just, it's, it's unconscionable. And on that, Alan, it makes me think about the Screen Actors Guild and union labor is very big in the movie industry. And I would assume that one of the reasons why they have the ability to continue to warrant the pay and the, and, and the contractual rights that they have is because of those types of protocols and, 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 and a longstanding track record of those protocols and the safety. When you are deciding where you're going to film, whether it's in Canada, whether it's in New Mexico, or whether it's in New Guinea, if you if you go to a cheaper cost place, do you still need to use unionized labor? No. No. So you can go to, to Hungary and film and you do not have to use unionized labor, whereas if you go to New York, you have to use unionized labor. It depends on where you are. Um, there's quite a few non-union states, but they're also union states. So some people go to non-union states and you make a movie for, if somebody said to me, well, that's what happens when you make a low budget movie. I'm like, no, it isn't. Even if you make a non-union movie, you follow the protocols of the business. So this was just sloppy. It, It was a poorly managed and produced movie. And I will go back to something you said. I mean, A, never live ammunition, but also we've discovered that even blanks can be dangerous because they shoot out a plug. Right. And you're right. In today's world, you don't even need the blanks. It's so easy. It's very cheap and easy to just add the muscle flash through visual effects, like really cheap. So this was just poorly conceived. And when you were talking about Sully and about that scene when the weather rolled in, uh, I thought it was interesting that you you went and you used many of the first responders who actually responded to the plane crash. Um, the frogmen who jumped out of the, out of the helicopter and the, the first responders who showed up in the, in the ambulances and the, and the boats that must've been, I mean, how often do you use civilians in a movie or is it almost always members of the screen actor guild as seconds and things of that nature? And this was a real departure to bring in those heroes who helped on that day. You know, Clint set an experience for that movie, which was, it must feel authentic. You have to feel like you live this. You know, because I had developed the screenplay with Sully, everything in the script was authentic and real. It didn't occur to me we'd cast the real people. When he first did it, he cast the guy who was the ferry driver. And I'm like, oh, God, I mean... I hope he can do it. And this happened a few times and it kind of gives you, I mean, of course I shouldn't have anxiety because it's Clint who directs actors so well, but I mean, unprofessional actors have a hard time, but we did it throughout the whole movie. Even the guys that were in the simulator, people flying the simulator, they were the real characters. It created a spirit of reliving the event. And he was right. Of course he was right, but he, he was right to really go at, it was fun. Like even when we shot the rescue part, all the Red Cross people were real. So they come up and go, well, actually, this is what happened. And he loves that. I mean, he loves the real guys coming, the frogmen telling him, well, this is how we did it. He go, okay, go do it. So on Sully, I'm fascinated that you, you see the script on Sully and there's not a person in America who doesn't know 
the end. They don't know, they don't know what ends up happening, right? And so what was the angle to Sully that made you say, everyone knows what ends up happening here, but there's a story still to be told? Initially, I wasn't sure there was. And when I read his autobiography, it was, I got my pilot's license when I was 16 and da 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 Air Force, then the event. And I was like, well, okay, we all know that story. And it had happened, you know, the year before. So it's not like we've got 20 years later, we're dying to see it again. And, and how can you top that anyway, in terms of the footage that we saw? But my partner at the time, Kip Nelson, said, well, let's just go meet Sully. It'd be fun to meet Sully. And we went up to his house. And within 20 minutes of meeting him, he said, it wasn't until eight weeks ago that I didn't know all of this was going to be taken away, meaning his fame, heroic fame and success. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he proceeded to tell us about the NTSB investigation and how they tried to prove that he that there was pilot error. There's lots of reasons, by the way, that that happens. The airlines don't want to be seen as at fault. The manufacturers of the plane and the engines, FAA. So they always go after the pilots. That's the easiest mark. And pilots don't have money for insurance and for lawyers. So the more you talk about, okay, that's a spectacular architecture for this movie. It's something none of us know. And they tried to aggressively prove that he was wrong. So you have this great conflict between this heroic event and this big group that really went after him. You know, the NTSB tried to say they didn't, but they really did. And during the course of making the movie, and that, by the way, is the blessing of me developing the scripts, is I knew that we had done it correctly. I knew that it was truthful. Everyone I met along the way all the real pilots that were in the simulator, you know, everybody spoke the same story vis-a-vis the investigation. So when they tried to kind of prove us wrong, I had a, a lot of arrows in my, in my quiver. I knew that, that we had told the story correctly, but of course it, it, it made them not look so good. And is, is it because it was that, if you will, the, the conflict that Sully was going through and that investigation that you named the film Sully rather than Miracle on the Hudson? You know, I think about this. Clint and I were sitting in the office and we're going back and forth, back and forth about, you know, there's the captain. There were all these titles and we both just kept coming back to Sully. And I, we both said, you know, we like single word titles. And he looks at me, he goes, let's just call it Sully. So, you know, it just was a gut it was a gut feeling. You know, you can second guess yourself. And that's where market research to me, you know, sure, you can research titles, but that's not really going to tell you what people respond to in the scope of the marketing and the movie itself. And so you just kind of have to go by what would make you want to see it. And when you, you know, we talked previously about the fact that this is kind of a, a the movie industry is a, is a single product. There's no real test marketing before you've, you've actually made the film. But when you actually have filmed it and you start to do testing with pieces of it and you're getting focus groups to see how well it's going to score and things of that nature, how much in the editing process, Alan, how much do you have the ability to rework what you have filmed? In other words, is it 90% baked and the editing is just kind of 10% or could you actually go and take 50% and switch it around and put different film into it to actually materially change the finished product? It depends on what your problem is. If you're missing little pieces, it's really easy to go and pick up extra footage. I've seen movies change 25% by just reconceiving or restructuring. On the other hand, 
if you never really got a great script, you never really had an ending or you never, you can't find it in the editing room and you can't make it up later. Like it's got to all be there. And then sometimes you have unanticipated changes or confusions. That's easy to fix. But if you're trying to find the movie in the cutting room, it, it won't work. Trial by Fire, a very different movie from Sully, a tragic fire death of, was it three daughters? Two. Two daughters in the early 2000s and a father who was on death row. How did that story hit your radar screen and what was the driving force to making that movie? So David Grant wrote the article in The New Yorker. It was a fantastic article and it won the Polk Award, which is the highest honor in journalism. And I read it and the article read like this compelling narrative. And then I had a screenplay development fund at that time. And I called CAA, the agency representing the article. And I said, you know, I think I'd really like to develop this. Kip and I were doing that together. And they said, well, we have a few clients that want to do it. And I said, well, tell your clients that I want to do it and see if they know me. And one of those clients was Ed Zwick who is a very well-known, he did Legends of the Falls and he did Glory, wonderful director, who'd been my friend for 30-something years. So we got on the phone and started to talk about it. And our connection with why we wanted to tell the story was it's just a really compelling expose about our criminal justice system. And particularly if you are poor in America, getting justice is very difficult. Equally, once you're convicted, it's very hard to get out. It's The appeals process, particularly in Texas, it doesn't exist. You have to have such a massive reason for revisiting evidence that very few people do. So Ed and I, it was a passion project. I never thought it was going to be this massive, big hit movie. I just, I thought it's going to be a really good movie. And we made it it for a very reasonable price. Laura Dern, interestingly, was on her kind of big comeback, meaning, you know, she's always made great movies, but she wasn't at the level she, in terms of Academy Award and as she is now, but we met with her and she was so passionate about the movie. We thought, all right, we're going to make this with her. And then of course, during the time we're making the movie, her stardom kept getting bigger and bigger. So from a marketing standpoint, we got lucky, but she was perfect for the movie. I mean, it was a, it was a great experience. And you always find out why, a number of actors are as successful as they are is no mistake. It's yes, they're star quality, but they're so disciplined and committed to the work, whether it's Tom Hanks or Laura Dern or Jodie Foster, they they're real pros and their preparation each day. I mean, it's awe inspiring. And I think they know themselves. Laura knew she could do this. Tom Hanks knew that he could play Sully. And so he would never put himself into something that, Tom has success movie after movie because he knows what works for Tom Hanks. So as we think about the future of Hollywood and Netflix and Amazon, and as you said at the top, big business stepping into Hollywood, and this isn't big conglomerates like we used to get coming to Hollywood and buying and trying to plug studios into everything from, you know, GE when they owned, when they owned uh, NBC and things of that nature. But now you have these big tech firms that are coming in, that are revolutionizing both the way that films are sourced, made, and then distributed. A couple thoughts on that. First, you mentioned Bob Iger saying 
if you will, don't rely on the algorithms, which I think is a really interesting statement from someone like Bob, who's been so successful at buying brands. I I wrote Bob a note after reading his book. And I said to him, instead of ride of a lifetime, he should have entitled it legacy carrier or uh, legacy holder, because to go to Steve Jobs and get Steve Jobs to sell him Pixar and to go and buy Marvel and to get that sold to him and to go to Lucas and get Lucas Films sold to him. Bob really has an incredible talent of going to these people who are multi-billionaires, have created this you know, brand and want to have him be the keeper of their legacy, if you will. And it's interesting to hear someone like him who is so good at running businesses to say, don't trust the algorithms. As you look at the power that Netflix has, the power that Amazon has in Hollywood today, is there hope for the independent film? Yes. I mean, right now during COVID, it's hard because you can't even get a movie insurance or bonded, you know, some a movie that gets covered for worst case disasters. Yes, because in the end, it's about talent. I think right now we're in an uncomfortable time where talent is undervalued. I think part of Mr. Iger's success is that he truly appreciated talent and he was willing to pay for it. Whether it's Lucas or Pixar, he he was a visionary, but it was also people. He brought in the right people. And I think the problem with a lot of these companies, Netflix, et cetera, is they're not quite as aware of individual talent and that being an essential component to your success. So algorithms say make this, but unless you have the talent, it won't work. So the difficulty for all of us is that Netflix and these other companies won't give any portion of the upside, the back end of the show. So if a show does well, you will not participate. No, not one. I think the only person, J.J. Abrams, who created Star Trek, get some of the back end. Otherwise you get nothing. So if you make a show that's a hit for four years, you have zero upside of that as a piece of talent. Equally, what is a hit? Because they won't release what their numbers are. So we have no idea how many people are seeing these shows. And in the success of any product, movie, TV show, et cetera, on streaming, we don't have any metrics for how well they're doing except that Netflix makes the next season, but they don't release any of their numbers. So I don't know. I think it's going to change. Really top talent. If you really know what you're doing, you want a piece of the upside. And given that there's a pushback on that, I mean, does that mean that that then just creates more of an opportunity to distribute through new channels? I mean, in other words, if if Netflix isn't going to give Tom Hanks back end on something that he goes and does for Netflix, he'll go find another, another distribution channel for it? Yes, but first of all, I think a new way of looking at channels is talent, right? Like most people, if you see an ad trailer or a TV spot that looks fantastic with Tom Hanks, you're going to find it. I think it depends on the quality of the star. Like, you know, many music acts started to self-publish. So sure, if you're the Rolling Stones, you can just put yourself out on the internet. I mean, quite a few stars do that now in terms of music stars. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet, but sure, if, if talent isn't being recompensed in the way that they should be, um, not only will they seek alternatives, but their agents will seek alternatives because the agents are getting less of a percentage of the upside too. So I think the movie business is in a real, the movie, television, streaming, 
it's all shaking out right now and it's been accelerated by COVID as we all know, but it's in, in deal making, it's in its infancy. And as you think about the big screen, because you've always made for the big screen. And now the big screen is everything from going to an AMC theater to watching it on your iPhone. How much does that change what you're making in the sense that large format, your last film at the top of a mountain with incredible cinematography and incredible views of the natural world, that needs to, by some definition, be seen on a large screen in large format with high, high def. And Yet at the same time, so much is being consumed on these small little screens on small little devices. And while the technology is fantastic and the color and the quality is amazing and the streaming capabilities are there, it loses something of the artistic piece to what has made great films like Dancing with Wolves, which you said previously was one of those ones that you passed over what it was. So as you think about that, does that impact what screenplays you're picking up and the way that you think that it's going to interact with your with your clients or the, your consumers or the viewers of your films? I mean, yes, from the standpoint that series are the most popular form of entertainment vis-a-vis streaming, and streaming still has the foothold. Land we actually released in theaters, and then we moved to pay-per-view, and then we moved to streaming. But equally, as far as I'm concerned, I'm so passionate about the story that, yes, I prefer Land to be seen on big screen. But Everyone's home entertainment systems are now these sophisticated big screens with the sound. And if that's where we end up, that's okay with me too, because it's pretty inevitable with broadband that you're going to have access to entertainment in a way that you never had before. So I'm more concerned about what about my project, series or movies, will make somebody want to click it on or get off their couch because there's a huge amount of product out there. So I go at it every single time, tasking myself with what makes this uniquely special that Willie sitting in Denver is going to want to watch it, even if it's on your phone. And so uh, my final question as we wrap up, Alan, what are you working on right now that has you the most excited? Oh, my goodness. I have a number of stories. I, I am developing a story that was all over the news the end of August, which is about a um Marine major, active duty, who 10 years ago became very close with his interpreter because this interpreter, he said, out of the dozens that he'd had, he was fit, he spoke perfect English, and he'd pick up a weapon anytime the Marines were under assault. They were in Sinjin, which was the most violent province that the world in Afghanistan. Was in Afghanistan. Yeah. And this guy saved his life, many others. So he tried to get the guy out of Afghanistan for six years and couldn't. The bureaucracy was horrible. And there was no special immigrant visa department. It was all shut down. So he gave the guy money to ransom his way across Afghanistan. And then it's an extraordinary heroic rescue at the end. It's an amazing story. And the guy who wrote Saving Private Ryan writing the script. And it's a tearjerker. I mean, Rachel Maddow did a story on it, as did Nightline, did it up at the end of her story. She's crying. You're crying. It's about brotherhood. It's a love story between two guys that risk everything to save each other. And in this case, the interpreter by by that point had a wife and four little kids. Sounds great. I can't wait to see it. Alan, what fun for me to be able to uh, dive into your world a little bit and for you to share with all of us 
your spectacular career and your insights as it relates to how movies get made and what's going on with the future of movies and all of that. So thank you so, so much for taking the time. Thank you everyone for joining us today. And we will be back next week with another Walker webcast. And Alan, I look forward to seeing you over the holidays. Thank you, Willie. Pleasure. See you. Bye.